Um, I want to start with a short story. There were once, and I'm, I, uh, am, if you're looking for the source, I listened to a commencement speech this week, and this is how it started, and I thought it was helpful, though I will adjust one word for the sensitivities of our church congregation. Um, there were two young fish swimming on a morning, and um, an old wise fish passed them and said, morning boys, how's the water? And these two young fish kept swimming and eventually one looked at the other and said, what the heck is water? And the whole point of the story is that some of the most um, important aspects of our life and existence don't even register with us. Some of the most important things about our lives are not consciously present to us, to us. We go through our existence without even thinking about them. Yet, we couldn't live or function without them. All right? Now, what happens then, I think, is we live our lives in a, a particular way without being aware of particular things, and we think that everybody's life is that exact same way. Um, and the particular thing I'm talking about is our culture. Um, and all of the small parts that make up culture. So then, when we interact with people from other cultures, or texts from other cultures in our case, we aren't even aware of how differently they're perceiving and experiencing the world, because it's so near to us, we don't even consciously see it. Okay, so let me give you an example. Um, when, we do, when we talk about these things, we often think, well, that's true about some things, but there are so many parts about culture and experience that are universal that we only have to identify a few minute cultural differences, and, and that's it. Um, and the way people test this to see if something's universal or not is they'll do a study in one culture, and then they'll try to find a remote culture somewhere else and give them a similar test and see what the results are. Um, most of us would say that facial expressions of emotion have to be universal. That if, if someone's lips are kind of spread out wide and maybe their teeth are showing, that means somebody's happy, right? Um, we might assume that's universal. In fact, there's a scientist, groups of them, who came up with this whole measurement of emotion based on facial expression, where they'll like give numbers for up and down for like every muscle on the face. It's called FACS is the measurement system. I don't know how they can stick an E in there to make it faces so you could remember it more easily. But um, so, what, so what they can do is they'll pull out a TV show um, in the, the one I've read about recently was a show I've never seen, but um, they will measure the face things and then explain what's going on in that scene just based on the emotion evident in the face. Now, when we all can do that. So if you turn on your favorite TV show episode, you can tell if people are happy or sad with the volume muted. You can tell if they're excited or surprised or glum, whatever the case may, might be, because it's using our cultural facial expressions. And you might think that that's universal. But the problem is that it isn't. Even something as close to us as our facial expressions to show emotion are not universally expressed. So um, in this book that I read this past week 
called Talking to Strangers. They go into this a good bit. And there was a study done of facial expressions in this remote tribe. Um, so the, the test case was, you know those pictures with different facial expressions and you have to write happy, sad, you know, angry, whatever. Well, they had a bunch of Spanish, Spain, elementary students do the test. Um, and they scored really high on accuracy. So for ha the happy face, um, every student got it right. It was 100%. For the sad face, it was mostly right. For the angry face, mostly right. Um, it was pretty standard across the board. Well, when they get, showed these same pictures to this remote tribe somewhere else, believe it or not, almost none of them guessed that the happy face was intending to express happy emotions. And a lot of them assigned the neutral face happiness emotions. So the point is that even something that we would say is as universal as facial expressions actually is enculturated. And you can't project our interpretation of a facial expression in another culture. Perhaps this is why in a world like ours, especially in the Twin Cities, where many cultures come together, there are so many misunderstandings between strangers, even at the level of expressing emotion on your face. I think some of us have experienced this. Have you ever talked to like uh, some non-Caucasian old guy and he looks really mad? But like the more you talk to him, you realize he's actually just having a really pleasant, normal day. Because his facial expressions don't match our enculturated facial expressions. Is everyone getting what I'm saying? So even things that we might assume are obviously clear are not. Well, when it comes to the Bible, that's a problem, isn't it? If we're projecting our experiences and way of reading the world onto the biblical text, um, we might not even know when we're wrongly doing so. Um, Lewis says this, we turn to the helps or biblical study aids only when hard passages are manifestly hard, but there are treacherous passages which will not send us to the notes. They look easy and they aren't. And I think this is true when it comes to cultural realities in the text. Things look easy, it looks like we can project our understanding of the world on it, when in reality, the culture that it's um, kind of embedded in is very, very different from ours. My main point is history and background and philosophy, all of these studies are important for us to understand the Bible in its world. We have to enter into the Bible as hospitable guests. Um, how many of you have ever traveled outside of the United States? most of you. So most of you know that when you're in, outside of the United States, you immediately start picking up on things that are different from the way we do things um, that you maybe never would have thought would have been different. Now, I can't really say anything about this because I've never been out of the United States, but I can say that I have accidentally walked into the woman's side of the Smallian Mall in North Minneapolis and quickly realized there is a different cultural world there and I should not have been on that side of the mall. Um, these are just, cultures are just different, and we have to accept that if we're going to appreciate the Bible for what it is. Now, that's what this lesson is about. I want to start by giving you some aids to do this. Um, you might think this is silly, but out of all the resources I give you, these are the top two. Um, the Curious Kids 
guide to the world of the Old Testament and the curious kid's guide to the world Jesus knew. Now, there's a third volume that I don't own called The World of the First Christians or something like that. If you just sat down and read these, you would be marvelously helped in thinking about the world of the Bible. It's not in depth, it's not everything there is to know, but it at least situates you to think about certain aspects of life and culture that are different than ours that you maybe never would have thought. It will also help you start to see that um, in a book as long as the Bible and written over as much time and in different places as the Bible, you can't say that there's one cultural background for every part of the Bible. Um, one of the things I was reading through these this morning and was reminded of the kind of stereotypical way we, saw, we talk about the ancient world's treatment of women, where women had no rights or things like that. But I was reminded in, in looking at one of these that actually, you know, Egypt had a, a female pharaoh one time and that certain women could own property and had just as much societal authority as men did. So we have to avoid ironing out all of the history and background into one thing, which means then that as we read different books of the Bible, we have to try to place it within that time period and in that place. All right, so that leads me to the second resource. This is a good go-to resource. If you just want one on your shelf, um, this Baker Illustrated Bible Background Commentary, what it does is it has a number of individual articles about different issues, both for Old and New Testament, and then it has every book of the Bible in here. And as it goes through the main passages, it will highlight any key historical, cultural, geographical backgrounds that inform our interpretation of the text. Now, I got this in the mail yesterday, so I have not read the whole thing. But I did go back and look at every article and every passage that I've preached at this church, and I thought it was surprisingly helpful. Sometimes books that try to cover everything do try too much and they can't do it. This actually does a pretty good job, even for some of the things that are less commonly known or things that, you know, I'm like, oh man, I think people will disagree with me. So last week I used the example of Mordecai um, refusing to bow down to Haman and talked about the way that the traditional way of thinking about that is Mordecai was just being this righteous guy refusing to worship Haman or something. Well, this points out that actually there are many times in the Old Testament that people would bow down to one another, and it was not a violation of God's teaching. And it points out that in Persian culture in particular, that was a standard way of greeting somebody who was of a higher station. So there was no idolatry involved. So this kind of resource helps us get into that background a little bit, all right? Now, you might be wondering on that particular issue, well, then how come we, uh, we had the traditional view that Mordecai was being righteous? Well, this is how, um, because people interpret that text and want Mordecai to be a good guy. In our ancient Jewish writings, where uh, they, like, fill in the gaps a little bit, and they say that Haman had an idol hanging around his neck, and that Mordecai would have bowed down to him, except for the fact that he would have simultaneously been bowing down to an idol. And when you start getting these kind of explanations in ancient literature, you start to realize there's an interested party, these Jewish scholars, 
who want to make their guy look good instead of prideful. And um, getting back into the original background helps us a little bit. So this is a, a really helpful resource. Any questions on, on something like this? All right, one more example from here that I thought was particularly helpful. On Christmas Day, I preached a sermon here from Luke 2, trying to give the historical setting for Jesus' birth, and I made the argument that he was not born in a stable, and um, the problem wasn't that there was, they kept getting turned away by innkeepers. Instead, they were commenting they didn't go to um, an inn, they were at this home, probably a relative's home, and the guest room was already taken up, so they were probably in the family room. So I put a picture up there where I showed how there are usually two rooms, and next to the family room would be the place where all the animals are kept, and there'd be a hole in the wall where the animals could stick their head through and eat out of the feeding trough in the family room. So if Jesus was born in the family room, it would make sense for him to put it, be put in this makeshift feeding trough. Well, they have a very similar picture in here on Luke 2 that would help us think about that. So this sort of thing shapes our imagination, um, helps us better understand what was going on. All right? Um, a couple more things. Unfortunately, at times, people overconstruct. You know, we speculate too much when we try to reconstruct this historical background. And then we make points that are not accurate. So one of the popular ones, remember when Jesus said it's easier for um, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, these people, these people speculated that there was this particular gate to enter into the city that was really small, but if a camel got down and crawled through it, you could get your camel through the gate. Well, there's no evidence of anything like that happening. That's a bad use of historical background or a use of historical background that's not accurate. Well, books like these, Urban Legends of the Old Testament and Urban Legends of the New Testament, kind of point out some of these misconceptions. I think it's really helpful. This one, the New Testament one, has more to do with historical background misconceptions. So, for example, one of them is that the shepherds in the New Testament day were these despised people by society. No one liked them. They thought of them like prostitutes or something like that. Um, well, that's not how shepherds were looked at in the New Testament. And we could logically reason that way by saying things like, well, then how come Jesus picturing himself as a shepherd was so popular and everybody liked that? Um, but this book gets into some of the reasons for the misconceptions in the wrong reconstruction of the historical background. All right, one more that I want to point out. This little book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. The, a second volume came out that I have not read called Misreading Scripture with Individualistic Eyes or something like that. Um, this, this book kind of points out the way that Westerners view the world that's different than the way that Easterners view the world, people living in Israel, for example. So I think it's fairly helpful. I think they overstate their case sometimes, um, but you'll have that. It would still be helpful. All right, any questions on these resources before I talk about historical background? All right. On a scale of 1 to 10, how important do you think historical background is for us to um, interpret the Bible? If you think without it, we can't interpret the Bible, 
You can put up both hands. If you think it's not necessary at all, it's maybe just a nice tag on to the Bible. You could raise up one finger. So you don't have to audibly answer, but on a one to 10, where would you be at on that? Got some eights, some fives, some nines, some sixes, uh, five in a Starbucks mug. Um, yeah, okay, good. So a range of, a range of things. Um, it's a little bit of an unfair question. I, I want to suggest that there are some texts where we should be saying 10. You've got to have 10 fingers up to be able to understand this text. Um, and actually, there are some texts where we don't have evidence that gives us 10 fingers worth of knowledge. So it's somewhat of a mystery. So the 1 Corinthians 11 head covering text, for example, is somewhat of a mystery to us. There are other texts where we could probably have like one finger up and um, historical background might deepen our understanding, but we can get the basic point even without it. And I'd say a lot of the Proverbs, for example, can fall into that. Um, so children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right kind of verses. We might need some context to understand that, but generally we can say um, we know what children are and there's the Lord and there's something called obedience and we can kind of reason that out even with a lot, out a lot of historical background. Now going deeper, we might need some because we might want to understand, well, what were ancient perspectives on the movement from childhood to adulthood? And um, what would that look like for children to obey their parents beyond a certain age? So background information might help us as we develop that, but our basic grasp of that text is we don't need a ton of background information. Does, does that make sense? Some texts require more, some require less. But we should um, pursue background studies and benefit from people who do them. Um, we can't just say it doesn't matter at all. It matters because we believe our faith is historical. It took place in history and in time. And we want to honor the fact that God chose to reveal himself in the scriptures within a particular culture and time and places. Um, we, we want to recognize that and comply with it in the same way that we want to recognize and comply with the fact that God gave us his word in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. So we're going to do the work to study it and try to understand it in terms of its language. So we should also do so in terms of its philosophical constructs and history and culture. All right. It's a reminder that God's word is for us, but it's not first to us. So we've got to get into the world of the people who it was first to. Now, there's one objection that I encounter sometimes when I say things like this, and that is people say, well, what about Christians who didn't have that historical background? Why are we making a big deal of it when there were people who didn't have this same historical background? And sometimes they're thinking of like uh, people who just didn't have the education to know about the background or people like their great-great-grandparents who never once thought about historical background, they just read the Bible. What I want to say is that um, we want to pursue interpretation to the best of our capabilities. We're responsible for what we're capable for, and sometimes our capacities are dependent on the information we have at the time. So when I'm pushing us to care about the history and background, 
even if that background causes us to interpret text differently than our forebears who didn't have the background, we're, we're not accusing them of being ungodly or unrighteous or something like that. We're just saying we have more information now, so therefore we're, we're, we are responsible to interpret the Bible in light of that information. And that's actually how every discipline works, whether it's in the medical field or in mathematics or anywhere else. We discover more as time goes on, and we ought to um, change our practice or our understanding based on that new knowledge. And it's not a slight against the people who didn't have the knowledge before, but it is a recognition of our responsibility because we do have it. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, that requires more of us because this kind of knowledge is not limited to people who are doing PhD work. This kind of knowledge is available in a $20 one volume book that gets us started. It's available in many cases online. Um, it's available all over. And, and that's uh, scary because we're now more responsible because we have access to these things. Now, not all of us have the same amount of time to spend on all of these things. Not all of us have the same amount of interest. But at a minimum, we should say, we can't excuse poor interpretation um, because we don't want to do the work to understand the background, all right? Once again, I think this reminds us to be reading the Bible in community with other people. No one of us can know everything about everything, but we can read the Bible and talk about it with other people who have different interests and who can help us think about things that we're not taking into account, all right? Does this all make sense? Okay. Um, let me talk about some errors of engaging with historical background. First, um, when people discover that historical background is a thing and that we have archeological findings and all these other things, um, and this is especially common among first or second year seminary students, but it's also common among people who are always buying the new ESV study Bible and they buy the archeological study Bible. And people can just get so fascinated with background that instead of actually studying the Bible, all they're doing is studying background. And they get so fascinated by background that they fail to understand how the biblical material relates to that background or the way that that background is supposed to help us read the Bible. You see how someone could get very fascinated with you know, just reading about archaeology, and now no longer care about what the Bible has to say. They just want to know about the shape of the city that that letter was written in, or something like that. Does this make sense? Okay, so we don't want to just become so fascinated about background issues that we stop caring about what's actually in the Bible. Second, there's the error of over-constructing the background. We can um, start to speculate and create too neat of a picture of the historical background and allow that to have too heavy of an influence on our interpretation of the text. Um, we can become so convinced about something in the background and allow that to be a determining factor only to later find out that we misunderstood the historical background or that somebody did sloppy uh, work and we were basing our interpretation on, on bad information. That's what happens with some of the examples I gave earlier. Another error is to just overgeneralize 
the background. So saying things like the example I gave earlier, in the ancient world, women were thought of as less than human. Well, that's true in some parts and places of the ancient world, but you can't project that onto the whole Bible, okay? So we don't want to overgeneralize. What's more, we don't want to um, just say that all Jews thought about the world in a certain way. There were actually different belief systems among Jews. And even if you just read the New Testament, you can pick up on that as you see Pharisees and Sadducees kind of disagreeing with each other about different things. And, and there were a lot, uh, there were numerous sects or different ideas just with regard to religious thought, um, not to mention social or political um, nuances to that. So we don't want to overgeneralize. So if you ever hear someone say, um, in the ancient world, everybody blank, you should have just a little bit of a question mark in your head. Um, now, as one of my professors likes to say, generalizations are almost always wrong, but they're almost always helpful. So there's, we all have to generalize eventually. Um, but we should be cautious against thinking that that's the whole picture. So what are some elements of our historical background studies? Obviously, the history of events is one of them. You know, investigation into archaeology, the way that a room is set up, as I explained with Jesus' birth setting, is important. But you can also think of other situations like Paul's instructions to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 as it pertains to the Lord's Supper. Well, if we're trying to understand the divisions uh, in the higher and lower seating places, like in James, we should understand what the general house structure was, so we know what it looked like to go to church. And because our homes are primarily just like a place for us to live and eat and sleep and bathe, um, we need to remember that ancient homes were also often the place of business, and um, a lot of other things would go on there. So their home wasn't just like a private residence, it had other features to it. So archaeologists are helpful there. We want to study the literature and writings of that time period, um, and we obviously need to study the language. All right, so there are a bunch of different aspects of philosophy. We want to have all of this in mind. Now, as we look at those things, we need to consider both the similarities with what we see in the Bible and the differences. One of the traps that we can fall into is we can hear terminology used in the Bible and then see that terminology used somewhere else and think that the biblical authors are either drawing on that or just trying to communicate the same thing. So for example, in the ancient world, there was this metaphor about heads and bodies. So the ruler was called the head and the general populace was called the body. Now, you can think of that in the New Testament where Christ is referred to as the head and the church is referred to as the body, or the husband is referred to as the head, and the wife is referred to as the body. And you might hear that similar language and think Paul is doing the exact same thing, or the New Testament authors are doing the same thing with that metaphor, when in fact they're actually subtly critiquing it. We'll get to that in a moment. The same is true with household codes in general. You know, there were instructions that were given to whole households um, that pertain to husbands and wives and children and servants that were common in the ancient world. Well, we also see those show up in the Bible, but just because the New Testament authors adopt that same literary form does not mean that they're adopting all of the beliefs about how families and households should function as they're 
you know, non-Christian counterparts did. So we want to pay attention to both similarities and differences. Um, why don't I go ahead and give the two examples on that. For the household codes, those codes were addressed only to the curios or the lord of the house, this uh, male who ran the house. So all of the instructions for women were given to the male, head of the household. Same thing for the children's instructions. They were delivered directly to the lord of the house. Same thing for, um, you know, the way servants should function. All of that was directed to the lord of the house. Well, the way that Paul does it is he actually addresses, addresses those groups individually. They never would have been addressed individually in the ancient world. But he's giving them some measure of dignity and respect and personhood, we might say in our language, by talking to them directly instead of telling the Lord of the house to enforce their behavior, he appeals to them on their own. More than that, instead of telling them to obey the Lord of the house, he instructs them to comport themselves as to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's even a play on words there as he's um, subtly changing the household code. No longer is the ultimate authority in the house the Lord, the, the human head of the household. It's Jesus Christ the Lord. So servants, you obey your masters as to the Lord, not the head of the house, but Jesus. Husbands, submit to your wives as to the Lord, or, or however it's phrased. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. So do you see how when you compare these things, there are many similarities, but the differences actually speak louder than the similarities do. Because the people who would have received that would have caught on to that immediately. That the head of the household might have thought, man, my, the authority in this house isn't actually me, it's Jesus. Jesus is in charge of our home. Well, that would be a different way of looking at your house and your family. Um, any questions on that one? I'll, let me talk about the head body metaphor then, because I'm, I'm using these examples because I talked about them in sermons. Um, in, in the head body metaphor, the, the body was always instructed to sacrifice itself for the head because parts of the members of the body parts of the body could always be replaced but the head couldn't be replaced easily so the ruler of rome was the head and the populace was the body so the body should always be willing to suffer so that the head could have a better life or if that metaphor was applied to an army the general was the head or the commander was the head and the regular soldiers were the body and those regular soldiers should always be willing to sacrifice themselves in battle for the head because the head's not replaceable. You can always throw more soldiers at the enemy. You can't throw another general in there. So then when Paul starts to use that metaphor and he says that it's actually the head that should sacrifice himself or in Ephesians um, 1, when he talked about Jesus Christ, the head, sacrificing himself, giving himself up for the body, it flips the script. As one scholar says, it, it turns the metaphor on its head, right? So instead of those texts being all about this massive, like heavy-handed exercise of authority by the head, it's actually saying that's how the ancient world thinks about this. That's how, to them, your contemporaries think about this. And you need to think differently. Leadership is not about authority. It's about sacrifice and self-giving. Well, if, if we don't, attend to the differences in the historical background, we're only going to read those texts in the way that naturally appeal to us. 
which is the way the metaphor naturally works, which is head that does all the thinking is more valuable than the body. You can cut off your arm to save the head. Never cut off your head if you have a head wound. Cut off your arm if there's an infection that will kill you, right? So, so we have to hear these metaphors and everything else in light of the way that they were used in the ancient world. Does this make sense? All right, let me give you one more example. Um, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that um, we were predestined to be adopted as sons. Well, when we hear that metaphor, um, the metaphor of adoption, we're probably going to hear it in a particular way. What's the way that we experience adoption in the United States? Yeah, either um, an infant or a two-year-old. So we, it's usually adopting a really young child, and we take them into our family. And when we read that text, we think, God adopted me in that way. Now, that's a spiritually enriching reading, and there's not anything particularly wrong about it, but we're concerned to hear the text as the original readers heard the text, and we want to understand that metaphor in the way that Paul was using it. So we need to think about adoption practices in the ancient world, which are different than adoption practices in the modern world. In the ancient world, um, you might add people to your household out of generosity and not adopt them. You kind of take them in as servants. You might care for them, these sorts of things. But if you adopted somebody, they became your legal heir. Um, and often, most of the time, adoption would take place by an, a couple who did not have any biological children, and they wouldn't adopt a baby. Instead, they would adopt a full-grown adult who had proved themselves worthy of adoption and had shown that they would have the capacity to manage the household. So adoption was not an act of charity or kindness. It was an act of sustaining the family, and it was very discriminatory. You're only going to adopt an adult who's like very good at what they're doing, very powerful, very adept at um, management. So if you adopt someone, it wasn't really so much a statement of love and affection based on nothing but wanting to care for a helpless infant. It was choosing somebody based on how good they were. Well, in that context, um, when Paul says, God adopted you, there's a little bit of interference that runs in the metaphor because he adds to it this notion of before the world began before you were in existence, before you had the opportunity to prove that you were worthy of adoption, God chose to adopt you. Well, if we hear it in that way, I think it actually deepens the nature of adoption for the way people would hear it, because it would have startled them a little bit. It would have been a little bit more meaningful and less commonplace to adopt someone before they had a chance to prove they were worthy of adoption. And isn't that Paul's whole point in Ephesians 1? that it's by God's mercy and grace for his glory that he chose us. Um, it's not because we proved ourselves. And then he'll, he goes on to add on to that idea in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9, when he says it's by grace that you're saved, not through the works that you've done. So I think he's appealing back to that adoption metaphor. God's adoption is different than the ancient way of adopting people. Well, we wouldn't know that that's even something that is worth considering that deeply, unless we're aware of ancient adoption practices. Is this all kind of track? So, so I'd want to say that in texts like that one, 
that's probably like a three on do we need historical background or not on our scale of one to 10. Because we can still find something meaningful about it without ancient adoption practices in mind, but we understand the text better and we understand the logic of the text better with those practices in mind. All right. Any, any other questions before I move on? Okay. When you are reading the Bible and thinking about your past interpretations of text or hearing sermons or something like that or reading Bible study notes, as you're expanding your understanding of Old Testament background and history and really just your understanding of the Bible, you're going to come across texts that you're going to have to reinterpret in light of additional evidence. And that's not bad. That's okay. That's how we navigate the world all the time. I think that for some Old Testament texts in particular, this is especially true because as uh, political tensions ebb and flow in the world in which the Bible was originally written, archaeologists have more or less opportunity to discover things. So there are some discoveries that haven't, haven't happened yet that will happen someday, hopefully, as archaeologists can look into things. Um, and we need to be willing to revisit or deepen or add to our understanding of text as those things happen. So one example from my studies on the image of God is that there was an archaeological dig in 1979 that shed massive light on the way that the terms image and likeness were used. And that's information that people didn't have for a long time until 1979. And then it took like another five to ten years for that to hit the biblical studies world and get into commentaries and these sorts of things. Well, someone who said the image of God was one thing and used the terms image and likeness, um, Salem and Demuth for our Hebrew student, um, differently prior to 1979 should be willing to revisit their conclusions or at least think about changing their mind based on the new evidence. Um, we've got to be open to that. For a lot of us, it won't be brand new discoveries that happen during our lifetime, but it will be us discovering a discovery that was made 100 or 50 or 75 years ago as we pull open a background commentary. As we do that, we should be willing to adjust our interpretations of certain texts. All right, As, when you're looking at that though, and you're thinking about adjusting interpretations, whether it's because of historical background or otherwise, there are a few things you should think about. First, you should consider whether or not um, the interpretation, yours or someone else's, is just simply misinformed, something like the camel gate. And when you realize that in misinformation is what led to that conclusion, you should be able to easily dismiss that conclusion. Um, it's not an indictment against anybody's virtue. It's not saying that they had nefarious agendas in coming to that conclusion. It's just that they maybe were misinformed. Um, at other times, it may be because that interpretation is just an uninformed interpretation. They lack the information. That's what I've been talking about. Well, add the information and then we see where it goes. At other times when you're reading, you'll recognize that there are inconsistencies in interpretation. So I'll use my Esther Mordecai example again. So when they say that Mordecai was being godly by not bowing down to Haman, 
But then later, we're thinking, isn't it awesome that Mordecai is riding around on a donkey with a robe and everyone's bound down to him? There's an inconsistency in the way we're interpreting something, and we need to try to reconcile that. Um, either it was, both, it was wrong in both occasions for Haman to want to be bowed down to and for Mordecai to want to be bowed down to, or it was appropriate in both occasions for Haman to be bowed down to and Mordecai to be bowed down to. We have to iron out our inconsistencies in interpretation. We also should understand that sometimes our interpretations are simply incomplete. Um, it's not wrong. It's not even misguided. Um, it's just incomplete. And so we need to keep adding information. We don't have to reject anything we've concluded. We just round it out a little bit more. I think the adoption example I gave is a good one there. We kind of get what adoption is, but we have just an incomplete understanding. So we fill it in a little bit more. Nothing essential about our interpretation of the text changed. It's just deepened. Um, and then sometimes our interpretations are just completely misinterpreted interpretations of text through faulty assumptions and procedures. So those, we just have to be open to saying, yeah, we, we're fallible. We make errors, and, and we want to be able to correct those. All right, anything anyone wants to chase for the last few minutes of our class here? If there's nothing, I'll just give a few more comments. I, just your standard study Bible will help you out a ton here. It's not always going to be right, um, but just pulling out a standard study Bible. Even if you don't look at every text along the way in light of the study Bible, if you read the author portion, the audience, location, these sorts of things, that will help. Um, some things are not able to be discerned just by historical background because everything comes into play at once. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is um, going back and forth with these individuals who are saying things like, food is made for the body and the body is made for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Well, some texts end the quotation as the body is made for food. And they have Paul saying, and God will destroy both one and the other. Well, sometimes we have to distinguish who's talking when. And then we can add background information that helps. Why would they be saying things like that? Well, maybe Greco-Roman philosophical constructs are informing it. But the point is, background won't solve every problem. There are, there are more things to it than that, but it's a necessary and helpful tool. All right? Okay, we're done. Thanks for hanging through that. Next week, we'll talk about something. I, I'm not sure yet what. Um, oh, I know what. We're, we're going to start doing genres, okay? And I think we'll start with Old Testament narrative. So bring your Bibles because we're going to maybe just walk through a text. Any narratives in particular that someone would like us to do? I'll probably default to you, Esther or Joseph. All right, see you then.